0: Crossroads. You know, over the past few weeks, we've taken a look at some people whose life story were recorded in Scripture and just see how they responded to God's faithfulness. These are ordinary people just like you and me, but God's faithfulness directed as well as empowered them to live the lives that they did. And we've looked at several different characters a guy named Abraham who trusted God enough to move from where he was comfortable and where he knew to a place that he had never been. He also trusted God enough that he believed that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the sky, and he hadn't even had a child yet. He also trusted God enough that he took that one son he did eventually have and took him up to a mountain and was willing to sacrifice him there, all because God told him to do that. We looked at a person whose name was Nehemiah, and Nehemiah trusted God enough that he stopped stepping over all the broken walls in Jerusalem and decided to work toward reconciling the lives of people that were there. We looked at Daniel, who trusted God enough to honor God, even when the influence and culture around him was sinful, wicked, filled with lots of idolatry. And then there's Ruth who trusted God's faithfulness enough that she committed herself to her mother-in-law, but also to God's plan through all kinds of twists and turns in her life. There was Elijah who trusted God's faithfulness and he persevered. He pursued the presence of God. And today we're gonna take a look at someone's life, another person in the Bible who was just minding her own business when she was thrust into a very prominent position that was also pretty precarious. Her name is Esther. She has a whole book uh, by her name that's found in the Old Testament. If you want to find that book, I would encourage you to open it to Esther right now. We'll we'll walk through some of her life together today. We're not going to have time to, to look at everything about Esther's life, but I'll point out some highlights and some key moments along the way. William Shakespeare was quoted as saying this, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. Well, Esther fits into the latter category. She found herself in something that she didn't sign up for, but was actually God's purpose for her life. The book of Esther begins by just providing some context. The son of Darius, who was king and and put Daniel in the lion's den, his son, Xerxes, is now in control. He's now ruling most of the world. He was evil. He was idolatrous. He is perverted. He was full of pride. He was just full of himself so much that he thought everybody should do exactly what he told them to do. And we find him making some really foolish decisions in a state of intoxication in chapter one. In fact, he has in the middle of a hundred and day, 180 day party with all of his officials and friends. And he had made an edict that anybody in the country could have as much wine to drink as they wanted. And he was taking himself up on the offer. Now, at the same time, his wife, who was queen, Queen Vashti, is throwing herself her own party. And while we don't know much about her or the festivities that she's participating in, we do know one thing about her, and that is she has some backbone. In the middle of his celebration, Queen Xerxes makes an edict to his wife, Queen Vashti, that she's to come to his party. He wants her to wear her royal crown. And most scholars think that's the only thing he wanted her to be wearing when she showed up at the party. We don't know why, but she refused. And this threw the king for a loop. He wasn't used to people telling him no. And so he gathered some of his closest officials around him to try to figure out how to handle this situation. And they determined that they were going to depose her as queen. And so because he got rid of his queen, now uh, he's lonely and he's interested in acquiring a new queen. So he organized a beauty pageant. All the young girls in the empire, as well as the captives from other countries were brought to him. They were brought to Susa. They were given the best diet. They were given the, the best beauty treatments of the day. And then they were presented one by one to King Xerxes, of which he was going to pick a new queen. I think it's a little bit like the bachelorette in our day, right? Probably had all the drama associated with that as well. It seems a little awkward or unusual to us today, but this was a pretty common way to appoint royalty. You may have seen in the news that the former CEO of Ikea was now elected as president of Switzerland. And they said he's currently assembling his cabinet. That was a joke, (laughs) Ikea, furniture, assembly, it's okay. You guys laughed. The last group, they, they weren't as smart as you all. They just like sat there and looked at me. Kind of left me hanging there anyway. Well, the search for a new queen is where we find Esther. She was a Hebrew. She's living in this foreign land in Susa. She's also an orphan. She has a cousin whose name is Mordecai, and they are both captives. They were taken by King Nebuchadnezzar from Jerusalem to Susa. That's a a Medo-Persian town. Her Hebrew name was Hadassah, and her life has some parallels with the person Daniel that we learned about just a couple of weeks ago. Esther, we're not sure why, but certainly probably was against her wishes. She was entered into this beauty contest of the next queen. She relied on the eunuch who was in charge to prepare for her moment when she would meet King Xerxes. And verse two, chapter, or chapter 2, verse 16 says that she found favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her. And that included King Xerxes, who chose her above all the other contestants. He made her queen and gave her a royal crown, and he threw a banquet to celebrate Queen Esther. If the Bible is filled with hyperlinks like Jeremy Locke indicated last week, I think the story of people in the Bible often have multiple subplots along with them. And we find one of those at the end of chapter two. While Esther is being made queen, her cousin Mordecai has some type of prominent role in the government officials because we find him sitting at the city gate. That was like the hub of all the economic and legal center of ancient times. And while he's there one day, He overhears the plot to assassinate King Xerxes by some of his other officials. And he tells that news to his cousin, who's now queen, and she tells that to King Xerxes. And the conspirators were found out they were hung and all the credit was given to Mordecai. Now, that doesn't seem real significant, necessary in this moment, but it'll become more significant in just a few moments. Later in chapter three, we're introduced to, I think, what is the most evil person we might find in scripture. His name is Haman the Agabite. I've never met somebody named Haman. And I think the reason why is because he was an evil person. He is conniving, manipulative. He's prideful. He's a racist. He's calculated. Maybe his heart was two sizes too small, like the Grinch that stole Christmas, right? But despite being a terrible person, he was very powerful. He was the second in command under Xerxes. Everyone in the king's service knelt down and bowed before him whenever he arrived in a room except Mordecai. And this infuriated Haman so much that he had to come up with a plan. It ticked him off so much that he determined that every Jew in the empire should be annihilated. He makes a request in chapter 3 verse 8. Listen what he says to King Xerxes. Haman said, there is a certain people dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger. He gave it to Haman, son of Hammedatha the Agabite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. A specific date was set that on that date, all the Jewish people of that empire would be destroyed. Now, God had made it clear from his covenant with Abram that the Israelite people, the Hebrew people, would be known as God's people. And every group of people since then have hated the Jewish people because of that. In fact, Susa is what is now known as modern day Iran. Probably not the, the nicest people in the world, right? This specific day was set for every Jew to be killed. And this threw the city in quite a turmoil, except for Haman and King Xerxes. They sat down to enjoy another pint. But Mordecai is mortified. He knows this is bad news for him, it's bad news for his people, and it's bad news for his cousin, even though She's queen. He tears his clothes. He puts ashes and sackcloth on his body and he begins to wail loudly at the city gates. How do you respond when evil approaches you? Do the things that break God's heart break your heart? How do you feel when you see evil around you being celebrated or you feel the darkness closing in? In these moments, does it cause you to doubt God's faithfulness? Mordecai turned to God for wisdom, and for strength. He wasn't wailing out of desperation, but out of dependence. Mordecai was concerned for his cousin Esther, knowing that if anyone learned of her nationality, then her fate would be the same. So through messages sent back and forth, Queen Esther became aware of what Haman planned to do. She was encouraged by Mordecai to to go and speak to the king on behalf of God's people. And initially, she was reluctant. She told Mordecai that she hadn't been in the presence of the king for over 30 days, and she just couldn't waltz in there. If the king did not extend a golden scepter to her, she would be killed on the spot. Mordecai responded by saying, what do you have to lose? You're going to die anyway. Well, that's probably not exactly how he said it. It was something a little more spiritual and motivational. Let's look what he says. He says, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he answered back. Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. Who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. This is the inciting moment, as Andy Tear taught us to look for in every impactful story. It's better than Walt Disney or Hollywood. It's real life, action-packed, drama-filled, into the seat type of moment where we wonder, is this the moment? Is God gonna remain faithful? Is this the moment when God's power is too weak, when he turns his back on the promises he had made, when his power runs out and evil wins? We see God's faithfulness leading Esther to be courageous and to do something brave. Former president of South Africa, Nelson Mandela, says this, courage is not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. The brave person is not the person who does not fear, but who conquers his fear. Esther knew God's promises. She might have wondered how she ended up in the situation where she found herself, but she had a decision to make, and she chose God's faithfulness to trust it. Look at verse four, or chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. When Esther sent, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for 30 days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. We see in this moment that Esther calls the people of the Jewish people to a fast. And we see fasting as something that's prominent all throughout Scripture. Fasting is just a declaration of our dependence on God. It's often demonstrated by abstaining from eating food or or drinking anything. And in this moment, that's what Esther is calling the people to, to fast. A fast can be called for as a sign of repentance or a a desire to be forgiven. Uh, A fast can be held just to seek God's wisdom or also just to petition God's activity. I've practiced fasting lots of times in my life. I've I've seen God work in some very powerful ways. Fasting is a way for, for me not to demand what I want from God, but for me to surrender or depend on what God wants to do. I remember fasting for my dad as he was a pastor of a church that was going through a really hard time. They were having a series of special services, and I remember just fasting for him all that week, asking God to show up in some very powerful ways, and he did. I remember fasting when I was trying to decide who to marry. I felt like Christy was the one that God was leading me to. And I, I sought God's wisdom. I fasted for several days, asking God to show me what his will is. I told him what my will was, but I wanted to be dependent on what he wanted for my life, for her life, for our lives together. I remember fasting when we got news that our first child, while still in the womb, was having some growth issues, and they had scheduled an amniocentesis. That's a really big word and a scary word for first-time parents. I remember going and fasting and then showing up at the appointment a week later, and they say, we're not going to do an amniocentesis. We don't need to because what we see on the monitor is much different than what we see all even just a, a week ago. God showing up in ways only God can show up. I remember fasting and praying two years ago when God was prompting our hearts to consider uh, becoming the lead pastor here at Crossroads, asking God once again to show up, to give us wisdom, to show us his will and his plan and to have the courage to join him. Fasting is something I practice every week, every Wednesday. I commit to fasting for the life of this church, for what God is doing now, but what God wants to do in the future. We've asked you and our staff and elders to, to consider fasting with us once a week, Because we want to see God do what he wants to do here. Well, three days later, after fasting and praying, Esther went to the king's court. And he extended to her the golden scepter. She wasn't going to die right then on the spot. And the king asked her why she had come, what she wanted. And because Esther knew he never gave up the chance to have a good banquet, she invited him to her house later that day and asked for Haman to come along. And so later that day, they arrived. And the king asked her, what is it that you wanted when you came to my court earlier today? And Esther asked again, would you join me for lunch again tomorrow? Well, at the same time, right in this moment, I think there's another subplot that is transpiring. Because Haman returns from Esther's house in high spirits, is what scripture says. He passed through the city gates where all the king's officials were there and they all stood up when Haman arrived, except Mordecai. And this infuriated Haman so much that he thought, I can't wait for that date in the future for all the Jews to die, especially Mordecai. And so he ran home to his family. He gathered his friends around and he told them how furious he was at Mordecai. And they said, Here's an idea. Why don't you build a 75 foot tall gallows and kill him on it? And Haman thought, that sounds like a great idea. Now, when I say gallows, I don't want you to think of hanging by a noose. It was actually something that he was going to impale Mordecai on, that his body would stay on that pole, that the birds would come and eat its flesh. And that would be a sign like, that's not something you want to happen to you. That's what Haman had in mind. And so Meanwhile, the king was having some insomnia when he was in his palace, and so he decided to watch an episode of his life story on the History Channel, right? So he whips out his uh, Hulu remote, he's flipping through, and he lands on an episode that is that moment where Mordecai had found about some conspirators wanting to assassinate King Xerxes and, and, and revealing that. And so King Xerxes says to one of his attendants who was coming back from gathering popcorn, hey, like whatever happened to Mordecai? Did we ever honor him for that? And nothing had been done. And so just then, Haman enters the king's presence. He had come there to ask permission to kill Mordecai because Mordecai worked for the king. And before he got to ask that permission, the king actually had a question for him. He said, Haman, let me ask you. If I wanted to honor somebody and and make them feel really special, what do you think I should do? Well, Haman could not think of anybody that the king would want to honor other than him, right? And so he came out with this outlandish plan to be honored by the king. And the king said, that's a great idea. I want you to go and do that for Mordecai. And can you imagine the look on Haman's face, right? Much to his chagrin, he executed everything that he had planned for himself, but now had to do that for his worst enemy, right? He returns home with his tail between his legs. Actually, scripture says his head covered in grief. But the limo was there to pick him up, to take him back to lunch at Esther's house, right? And so after dinner, the king asked Esther a third time, what is it that you wanted when you came to visit me? And this time, full of courage, she was brave and with complete trust in God's faithfulness. Esther said these words, They're recorded in chapter seven, beginning in verse three. Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition and spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have never uh, approached you. I would have just kept quiet. Caused you no distress to justify disturbing the king. But King Xerxes answered Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? The man who's dared to do such a thing. Esther said, An adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in rage. He left his wine and he went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word had left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king said, a pole reaching to the height of 75 feet stands by Haman's house. He had set it up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury was subsided. The last three chapters speak of how instead of the Jews being killed on the 13th and 14th day of Adar, this moment that had been set up for them to be annihilated, the king made a new edict that said that they could defend themselves against any of their enemies and also plunder their enemies. And they did. On the 13th and the 14th day of Adar, they defended themselves and they plundered their enemies and then they rested on the 15th day. Because this is such a a powerful testimony of God's faithfulness, the people of God instituted a day to remember all that God had done for them and they called it Purim. The Jewish people still celebrate Purim today. It's usually in the early spring and it's not a remembrance of Esther and Mordecai, but celebrating the faithfulness of God. One of the significant things that you might notice if you read through the entire book of Esther, compared to the other 65 books of the Bible, the name of God is not mentioned anywhere in the entire book. The book is not filled with miracles or obvious interventions, but the providential hand of God is obvious and active throughout the life of Esther. His faithfulness is on full display. What does the providential hand of God look like? Well, it might be invisible, but it's always active, even when we don't see it. Providence is the continuous activity of God in his creation. It's God's concentrated attention everywhere and at all times. The evidence of God's faithful is not necessarily the miraculous. It's always providence. We don't need a miracle To still know and experience God's faithfulness. We can trust that He's working for our good and His plans are working perfectly at all times, even in silence. Chuck Swindoll says this God's presence is not as intriguing as His absence, His voice is not as eloquent as His silence. Who of us has not longed from a word, for a word from God, searched for a glimpse of his power, or yearned for the reassurance of his presence, only to feel that sometimes he seems absent for the moment, distant, preoccupied, maybe even unconcerned. Yet later, we realize how very present he was all along. We experience God's faithfulness to the fullest, When we are left wondering where he is, how he's working, and how everything is going to work out. It's when he asks something of us that doesn't make sense or or seems illogical. It's when something undesirable happens to us or our worst fears come to pass. It's when the evil around us seems to be celebrated and the darkness seems to be closing in. It's when we feel like we don't know what to do next, which way to go, how things will work out, or how we'll be able to go on any further. See, the contrast of the major players in the life story of Esther reveals God's faithfulness. Think about the first two. King Xerxes, he just wanted it his way, on his terms. He just wanted to eat, drink, and be merry. You think of Haman. He was out to get anyone who got in his way, and he wouldn't give way to anyone else. Contrast that with Mordecai. Mordecai was humble, even when overlooked. He was reliant on his faith. He was concerned for others. He trusted God would make a way. And then Esther, she was courageous. She was wise. She was coachable. She was brave. I love one of our global outreach partners' uh, mission statement. It's Uncharted International. They're actually based here in Evansville. And they say that we exist to help people do brave things to advance the kingdom of God all over the world. I hope that you've seen throughout this entire series, ordinary people like you and me doing brave things as a response to God's faithfulness. Abraham did not hold on to his homeland or to his family or even to his only son. He was obedient to go. He was uncomfortable and he was obedient to the point of raising the knife over his only son's head. Will you be brave enough to release your grip on something or somewhere, or maybe even someone, because God is asking you to trust Him with it or with them. You know, Nehemiah, he noticed the brokenness around him and he did something about it. Will you quit looking past those that God has placed in your path? Will you quit ignoring your God honoring moment? The burden that God has given you, will you work toward restoration? to those around you with courage and with trust. Daniel remained faithful in the, in the midst of extreme cultural pressure. I'm wondering, will you draw a line in the sand and declare your purity and keep your integrity no matter how hot the fire, no matter how hungry the lions look? Ruth remained committed to her family and to God in every little decision. Will you stay true to your God and keep the covenant that you have made to him, to your spouse, to your children, to God's church, to the calling that God has placed on your life? Elijah pursued the presence of God. He was strengthened from the inside out to complete the work that God had given him to do. Will you let God restore you through his presence in your life as you seek him with every moment that he's given you? And Esther, She didn't let death keep her from approaching the king and making her request. Will you have the courage to take action on the prompting that God has given you for his kingdom and for others? Because of God's faithfulness, are you willing to stop avoiding what God is calling you to do, to take the risk of trusting his faithfulness, to step out of the boat and start walking on the water like Peter did? Maybe it's time for you to recognize the enormity of your sin and the inability for you to do anything about it and trust God's faithfulness who's provided you a savior. He sent Jesus to our world as an act of his faithfulness to provide a way for all of our sins to be forgiven, for us to be washed clean of all our iniquity, to be filled with his presence so that we could understand how to live lives that honor him, living and loving like him finding true life in him. Maybe it's time for you to quit playing games and seriously consider the fact that God's placed you in a certain marriage, in a specific workplace, in a specific neighborhood, in, in deliberate situations for such a time as this. It's a time to stay pure. It's a time to shine his light. It's a time to bring reconciliation. It's a time to speak the truth in love, to take a stand, to finish the job, to bring hope, to share the gospel, to provide accountability. You may not be able to trace God's invisible hands, but you can certainly trust his faithful heart. Even if you can't see how God is working, trust that he is and that he's equipping you to be courageous and to do the brave things he's called you to do. Esther's life teaches us that no matter what we might be facing God is present and He is at work. Even when our circumstances and life might be falling apart, He's given us work to do through His strength and power. And the kingdom of God will advance all over the world when we trust Him enough to do the brave things He's called us to do. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for the life stories that you've recorded in scripture I think sometimes we picture them with a big s on their chest and a a cape out their back and we think that they're superhuman people that we we can't even touch God I'm grateful that's not the story I'm grateful their lives are filled with difficulty and tragedy and imperfection they seem weak at moments they seem strong in moments and, and they just seem like average people I get encouraged by that because I know in your eyes uh, every one of us is created with purpose and with intentionality. God, sometimes it just feels like we're average. We're, we're, we're not the right person for the job. God, thank you for this hall of fame group of people, who, ordinary people who had an extraordinary faithful God. God, my prayer is that we, like Esther today, would be brave and courageous. It might become something that that we are known for, but it would be because of your power and strength working in us, nothing of our own. God, I pray that as a result of us responding to your faithfulness, God, the world could change. The world, this community, our families, our workplaces, our neighborhoods would be brighter, more filled with purpose, more safe, more, more, more fulfilling because of the work you're doing in us and the work that you're doing through us. God, I pray that we would be light in a dark world. I pray we would be salt of the earth. I pray that we would live in love like your son, Jesus, and we'd have the courage to do so. No matter what the world around us is doing. God, I pray that they would notice, they would be drawn to you. I pray that through the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.